come face to face with the sovereignty of God, his plans don't seem to line up with our plans. Would you raise your hand if you've ever experienced that? It's just like, God, th- this does not make sense. But it, by the way, if you're here and you did not raise your hand, I'll guarantee you that in the years ahead, you will be raising your hand. Because when we stare the sovereign God in the face, sometimes his plans just don't seem to add up. We ask questions like this, God, why won't you heal my body? Dave Furman went to seminary and with the intention of planting a church many miles away. And so he did that. And it's a, it's a thriving church, but he had no idea at the end of his seminary days that he would contract this horrible disease. God, why won't you heal my body? God, why won't you give me a new job? God, why would you allow this set of circumstances into my life? God, I just don't like my life right now. I don't like where it's going. I don't like my circumstances. God, this is not how I planned it. Sometimes it is so difficult to verbalize your frustration to God. You don't even know what to say. And you lift your hands into the sky and you cry out, why? Why? If you have ever prayed a prayer like any of these that I've just uttered or, or even questioned God's sovereign purposes, then you will certainly understand Habakkuk's second lament. Habakkuk's first lament, which is found in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, essentially asks this. We looked at this two weeks ago. How can a holy God allow evil to not only exist, but to persist. His second lament is similar. We'll look at it today. His second lament, however, is is a little bit different because now he's responding to God's response. We looked last week at, at what I refer to as the divine prerogative in Habakkuk 1 verses 5 to 11. Let me sum up the message from last week. After Habakkuk's first lament... God responded decisively and proactively to the prophet. And he said this. He said, I am raising the Chaldean army. And the Chaldean army or the Babylonian army, same thing. They will take Judah into captivity. Now, upon hearing those words, Judah's prophet must have heard, as we indicated last week, the sound of marching boots. He must have heard the roaring of of this army moving toward his land. He must have smelled the, the stench of his enemies. He heard the snort of the horses. In fact, I believe that the fear caused him to shake deep into his soul. Certainly, this was not the answer that the prophet was anticipating. And so imagine the shock that literally reverberated through Habakkuk's system when he heard the answer from the living God. This shock and awe leads to another uh, prayer, what I like to refer to today as Habakkuk's second lament. Before we get there, the title of the message is Kiss the Wave, Responding Rightly to God in the Midst of of pain. I want to invite you this morning, if you're not already there, to turn in your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk near the end of the Old Testament. 
And as you're turning there, would you, would you stand to your feet if you would so, be so kind to do that? And let's read in chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. This is God's word. Habakkuk's second lament. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You are of purer eyes than to see evil, and you cannot look at wrong. Why do you look idly at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what, what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems low, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm just flabbergasted at the the lessons, the principles that we're learning midway into this book. And Lord, as Habakkuk utters his second lament and you give him a very clear response, I pray that you would ready our hearts and our minds to hear the word of God. Lord, it is no secret that many are hurting physically, emotionally, spiritually here within the walls of this church family. And so I pray that as we, uh, we relate to the lament of Habakkuk, that we would hear the response that you give him and that you would encourage your people with this section of Scripture. God, we thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that the Spirit of God applies the Word of God to the people of God so that we would be edified and encouraged and equipped and strengthened and emboldened so that we would be propelled into another week, so that we would share the message of the gospel with people that need to hear it, so that we would live the message of the gospel for people that need to see it. And so I pray that your, your mighty Holy Spirit would come today, that you would touch not just one, not just two, but dozens upon dozens of people, all for the great namesake of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we turn our attention to Habakkuk's second lament. Now remember that a lament, that's one of those fancy words that most people don't use anymore. But a a, a lament is simply a groan. And you're all aware of what it means to groan. If you've ever been in Seattle traffic, (laughs) need I say more, you understand what it's like 
to groan. For some reason, Linda, I just happened to look over and see you. And I I remember when Linda had her, her heart surgery. It's been a long time ago now, hasn't it? And I thought to myself, if I remember right, it was about six or six thirty you went in and so I was gonna my intent was to be up to Seattle and so I thought I'm gonna leave here at three thirty in the morning, I'm gonna beat the traffic. Yeah right. And so there I am in North Seattle waiting and waiting, saying, I need to be at the hospital. I was a man who was groaning, right? Hopefully not too loud. So you understand what it means to groan. Young people, you understand what it means to groan when mom says, would you take out the trash? By the way, your parents should discipline you when you do that. We understand what it means to groan. We understand, as I learned a few days ago, I was with with my brother at a concert in Seattle. Sitting next to a guy who was coughing and sneezing and moaning and groaning. I thought, oh man, I can't get sick. And in an hour, wouldn't you know it, I felt a little tickle in my throat. We understand what it means to groan. But when we look at the groaning of lament here in Habakkuk, this is a deep abiding groan. It's a wail. It's a crying out to God. God, you are holy. How can you tolerate this? That's really the theme that we see here. God, you are the holy God of Israel. How in the world can you tolerate the Chaldean army marching into Judah and taking them into captivity? I want to take a few minutes and explain this lament. And there are three questions that will help to to give uh, really a voice to this lament. The first is found in verse 12. Habakkuk 1 verse 12. Habakkuk cries out to God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? That is to say, are you still exercising your authority? Are you still the sovereign God of Israel? And the reason that we deduce this is he asks this question, are you not from everlasting? Now, everlasting comes from a Hebrew term that means, surprise, surprise, forever. You see, Habakkuk is a good theologian. Habakkuk knows his Bible. Habakkuk understands the character of God. He very likely understood Psalm chapter 90 verses 1 and 2 that says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Habakkuk believed that Habakkuk breathed that. He was also very familiar with the story of Abraham who planted a tree in Beersheba and called at that point on the name of the Lord. And he referred to the living God as the everlasting God. Genesis chapter 21 verse 33. Habakkuk understood Deuteronomy chapter 33 verse 27 that says the eternal God is your dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. Habakkuk was a good theologian. He understood the character of God. Therein lies the reason for the lament. The everlasting arms seemed so distant. 
The everlasting God seemed so far away. After all, God said himself in the previous verses that he was raising up the Chaldean army to take Judah into captivity. Habakkuk continues in verse 12. We shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as judgment. And you, O rock, have established them, that is the Chaldean army, for reproof. And so once again, Habakkuk is, is trying to, to piece the puzzle together. He's trying to reconcile what he knows to be true about the character of God, that God is omnipresent, that God is everlasting, that God is omnipotent. But he's trying to measure those realities with the sovereign designs of God. How do you reconcile those things? And so Habakkuk is essentially saying in verse 12, God, you are the eternal one. I affirm this. God, you know the end from the beginning. You are the alpha and the omega. You are the great I am. You are the first and the last. You have established the cosmos. You established the end from the beginning. You ordain everything that comes to pass. Habakkuk believed all those things. But then under his breath, it's as if he's saying, have you forgotten that we're on the same team? You who are the everlasting God, have you forgotten that we're working this out together? Have you ever been in Habakkuk's sandals? Let me say it in a way that would suit a Bellingham audience a little bit better. Have you ever stood in Habakkuk's Birkenstocks? Just want to make sure you're still with me. Can you relate to what this man of God is experiencing? God, this doesn't add up. Why are you allowing this into my life? Are you still on your throne? God, Are you still exercising your sovereignty? There's a second question that helps us to unpack and to to understand the second lament of Habakkuk. It's found in verse 13. He says, you who are, are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? It's as if Habakkuk is asking this question. God, are you concerned with the rampant ungodliness? Are you concerned with what's happening here? Now, in verse 13, he affirms what he knows to be true about the character of God. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. He understands, once again, he has his theology straight in his head. God, you are, we sang about this, holy, holy, holy. You cannot tolerate wickedness. God, I understand you can't even be in the presence of evil. So he understands the character of God. He knows what the scripture says about the holiness of God. Listen to a few of these verses that were likely ringing in his mind. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Exodus 15, 11. 
or in Leviticus 27. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. And who could forget that passage in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah sees this vision of the living God, a pre-incarnate visitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the passage says, and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. These are thoughts that were likely reverberating through the mind and the heart of the prophet Habakkuk. Listen to his twofold complaint. God, why do you not execute justice on evildoers? My best friend's a dentist, and I like to tease him from time to time, and I tell him, I'm sure your favorite verse is, break the teeth of the evildoers. (laughs) Right? I think it is his favorite verse. But here Habakkuk's asking, why, God, don't you execute justice on these evil people? There's another complaint. Why don't you defend the cause of the righteous? God, why don't you get them? And why aren't you there for the righteous? Why don't you seem to defend the cause of the righteous? Now, one commentator steps in and helps us. He says, these are not questions of doubt, but rather They are questions coming out of a deep faith, seeking understanding of the deep things of God. It's as if we're going all the way back to the book of Mark. And we looked at this two weeks ago where the man says to Jesus, Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. I think that's what's happening with Habakkuk here. I believe in your character. I believe in your promises, but help my unbelief unbelief, reconciling God's holy character and the mysterious providential designs of God doesn't seem to add up for Habakkuk. Now, march forward or fast forward with me to a date that you can all relate to. The date is March 10, 2019. I want to transport you from this ancient landscape to today in Everson, Washington. Can you understand Habakkuk's perspective? Can you understand his lament? Can you understand why he is so torn up? Have you ever wondered why God will just sit idly by and let wicked people get away with just about everything? Have you ever wondered why God... Or if God is concerned with the rampant ungodliness in our culture. Have you ever asked yourself, where is God when thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands upon thousands of babies are ripped from the womb in the United States of America? If you have ever wondered that or asked that question, you have a a fairly good idea of what's happening in the mind and the heart of Habakkuk. In those times of wonder, in those times when you were perplexed, I want to encourage you to turn your mind, and I want to have you turn also in your Bibles at this point to Isaiah chapter 55. Will you go there with me? 
When you become confused, when you begin to scratch your head, when your mind begins to to question the purposes of God, when you begin to ask questions out loud to God, I want to encourage you to remember the the words in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, that say, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, I want to take a brief detour here just for a moment. If you go back to Habakkuk chapter 1, because smack dab in the middle of this second lament, he describes the exploits of the, the Babylonian army. Look at verse 14 through 16. He says, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he, is, he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Listen to how one commentator describes this little scene. He says this, men made in the image of God would be caught like fish with hooks and dragnets. Babylonian art pictured these aftermaths of victory in the same terms. Those captured and marched off into captivity were strung together with literal hooks thrust through each person's lower lip. Ouch. No pity was shown to the defeated. False gods were worshipped as giving Babylon remarkable power over a multitude of nations as they relentlessly fished for more victims. The prophet prays against the worst depravity that was crushing the civilized world. Are you not concerned with ungodliness, God? And then drop down to verse 17. Habakkuk says, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Here, basically, Habakkuk's basically saying, will evil continue to persist unchecked? Once again, as we've already seen, Habakkuk is trying to resolve this tension between what he knows about God and God's sovereign designs. Now, in moments like this, if you can put yourself in Habakkuk's Birkenstocks once again, this is when our faith is put to the ultimate test. And I would also argue this is the time when we are poised for massive spiritual growth. When you're in this season of life where everything is going wrong, your health is declining, your business is failing, nothing's working out, your children are rebelling, your life is going crazy, you begin to ask these questions that Habakkuk poses to God. This is a time for a massive spiritual growth spurt. And so instead of allowing the the events of life to beat us down, we recognize, as Dave Furman recognized in the video, that these are opportunities. this, This is a season where God's purposeful designs will 
will help to grow our faith. He'll grow us deeply in the soil of his grace. Listen to the words of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. The the context is, is trials. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I heard John Piper say many years ago that sometimes... If you read a big book, if you find one good quotation, it's worth reading several hundred pages. I'm reviewing a book for Crossway right now. It's the New Systematic Theology by Joel Beakey. And it's volume one, 1,300 pages. I'm 870 pages in, and here's the quote that surfaced after 870 pages. Are you ready? And it was worth every page to get to this quote. Sin does not cause God's plans to fail, but mysteriously fulfills them. One more time. Sin does not cause God's plan, plans to fail, but mysteriously fulfills them. This is the lesson that Habakkuk is learning. And I want you to think about your spiritual posture during your season of difficulty, and especially if you are in that season right now. If you're not in a season, if if life is, as the great philosopher once said, hunky-dory, if your life is hunky-dory, then then backlog some of these lessons. But for those of you that are in your season of, of adversity, it's a health crisis, it's an emotional crisis, it's a friendship crisis, it's a marriage crisis, it's a church crisis, it's a school crisis, or it's a combination of all those things. I want you to think about your spiritual posture in this season. When you walk through a season of adversity, how is it that you respond? Do you respond with what I like to refer to as spiritual slouching? You know what spiritual slouching is? Is that how you respond to your trial? Or do you respond with with complaining? Do you respond with depression? Do you respond with sinful anger? And I believe what's happening here in chapter 1 and chapter 2 is very instructive because Habakkuk gives a response that I believe is worth emulating. His response is grounded and rooted in faith. And I want to tell you what he does. I'm going to, I'm going to give it to you up front and then we're going to unpack it. Here is the secret to Habakkuk's life at this point. Are you ready? Habakkuk waits. He waits. Lament number one, God responds. Lament number two, he waits. Notice chapter two, verse one. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. 
In the Christian Standard Bible, it's translated as follows. I will stand at my guard. I'll stand at my guard post and station myself at the lookout tower. I will watch and see what he will say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. The tower here that is referenced in Habakkuk 2.1 makes reference to a story in Ezekiel 3.17. As the, the watchtower was a place of security. Those of you that hunt, you understand the watchtower. You go up. And you watch. It's a place not only of security, but it's a place of strategy. And so that's what is happening here is Habakkuk is in his watchtower and he's waiting. And I believe that between verses 1 and 2 is a pregnant pause. You'll recall that when we read this together as a church family, I read verse 1 and some of you felt that awkward Pregnant pause. That's intentional because I believe that Habakkuk took time to wait. He waited, he waited, he waited for a response from God. And so there is the important principle that we need to grasp in verse 1 and 2. And that is, it, does, it's, it doesn't sound like an intense principle, but trust me, it is a, it is a mighty principle. And that is that we must learn to wait upon the Lord. Would you hold your finger in Habakkuk and go once again to Isaiah? This time to Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah chapter 64. And I want to, to share a personal lesson that has helped and encouraged me over the years, and I trust it will do the same for you. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4, from of old, no one has ever heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts or who works for those who wait for him. There are two mighty and related realities that surface here in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4. The first of which is this, that God acts on behalf of those who trust in him. I believe that oftentimes in the Christian life, we have this reversed. We work, 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 work. That's not what God says to do. God says, I'm calling you to wait on me. And for those who choose to wait on me for an answer or for action, I find great delight in working for that person. And that leads to the second principle, the second mighty reality that God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. I greeted my friend Star this morning and I said, Star, I'm going to quote your seminary professor this morning. It's a seminary professor that I wish I would have had because I respect him uh, so much. He's still uh, alive. He's, I want to say, 92, 93. He's, he's a rather old man. It's a godly man by the name of Daniel Fuller. And Dr. Fuller uttered these words in his most recent book. He says, it must be emphasized that enjoying the blessing of having God work for our benefit is conditioned upon ceasing to trust in our wisdom. 
and effort to attain a happy future, waiting instead for him to bring it to pass. Do you see what Fuller's instructing us to do? We must wait on God, and when we wait on God, God finds his greatest delight in working for you. That is to say, don't get the cart before the horse. Wait for God to work for you. Listen to Jeremiah thirty-two forty-one. I will rejoice in doing them good. This is God. I rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in the land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. If you have checked out to this point, and you're, you're prepared to take something home with you, would you take this home with you? And, and never forget it, that God rejoices in doing good for you. Amen? He rejoices in doing good for you. So you may be here today, and you're waiting for that job. You're waiting for the new job. You're waiting for the first job. You're, you're waiting to get married. You're waiting for that loved one to trust Christ. You're waiting for that that sibling or that son or daughter to trust Christ. You're waiting for that spouse to trust Christ. You may be waiting for justice to be served. You may be waiting for, for physical healing or emotional healing. I believe that this passage is primarily teaching us to wait like Habakkuk. And as we wait like Habakkuk, like he did between verses 1 and 2, and trust the Lord to answer in due time, that the living God finds great delight in working for you. Listen to Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. That says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Now, I want to read out of the Good News Bible. It's something I don't normally do, but I I happen to check the cross-reference. And I want you to hear how this verse is translated. And yet the Lord is waiting to be merciful to you. He's ready to take pity on you because he always does what is right. Isn't that good? But listen to what really grabbed me. How many of you desire to be happy? Just just show of hands. Those of you not raising your hand, get your hand up, right? P- Pascal used to say this, the, the great French mathematician, Pascal said that all men desire to be happy. He said that in a day when men included women. All men and women desire to be happy. He said, even those who hang themselves, why do they do it? Pregnant pause. Why do men hang themselves? To be happy. They want to be happy. So we all want to be happy, and this is God given. There is this notion, and I hear it all the time. God wants you to be holy and not happy. Have you ever heard that? The next time you hear that, take it and crumple it up into a little ball and throw it in the garbage can. Right? Because this is the reality. Holiness equals happiness. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, says John Piper. 
Holiness is equivalent to happiness. They are not at loggerheads. And so here's what the verse says. Happy. How many of you want to be happy? Happy are those who put their trust in the Lord. If you are not a Christian today, you desire happiness like every other Christian, but you are not happy. On the basis of this verse and thousands of others, happy are those who put their trust in the Lord. And so as a as a pastor, as a, as a preacher of the gospel, it is my privilege to, to tell every unconverted person the only way you'll ever be happy, the only way you'll ever know contentment is to place your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And guess what else comes with that? Freedom, forgiveness, salvation, heaven, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the people of God surrounding you. The fringe benefits are absolutely unbelievable. Now move with me from Habakkuk's lament to God's timeless response. The timeless response occurs in verse 2 to 4. Let me read it. And the Lord answered me. The Lord answered me. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, don't miss the marvelous truth in verse 2. It's something that you would be tempted to skip over. It's the words, and the Lord answered me. Isn't that amazing? So Habakkuk is perched in his watchtower Waiting and waiting and waiting. And we don't know how long the pregnant pause was. Was it seconds? Probably not. Was it minutes? Or was it longer? And he waited and he waited and he waited. And do you see the beauty of those words? And the Lord answered me. It's kind of like when I suggested to my daughter, you should write a letter to President Bush. You can do that. And so she wrote a letter to President Bush and we addressed it for her and she put the stamp on it and sent it to him. And three weeks later, she got a response letter from President Bush. Presidents do that? But God does this? He, he answers his people? The Lord answered me. The great God of the universe finds delight in answering your prayers. Now, notice how he responds. He responds with, you have to love this, a theology lesson. This is what you might consider theology 101. And there's some lessons here that he teaches. Lesson number one, God never sweeps sin under the carpet. Do you see it there? God mentions two sins that characterize the Chaldeans. The first is pride. He says his soul is puffed up. And what do we know about pride? The mother of all sins. Pride goes before destruction, so says Proverbs 16, and a haughty spirit before the fall. James 4, 6, therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to whom? To the humble. All these things he has made and all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. Do you ever wonder who the Lord looks upon with favor? 
This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That is the man. That is the woman. That is the boy. That is the girl that God looks favorably upon. The humble, the contrite in spirit, the one who trembles at his word. But there's an additional sin that God refers to in these verses, and that is the sin of immorality. He says, it is not upright within him. Listen to Proverbs 3.32. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. Proverbs 11.3. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Proverbs 21.8. The way of the guilty is crooked, but the conduct of the pure is upright. That's the first part of God's response, that God never sweeps sin under the carpet. He always deals up front with sin. But the second lesson occurs in verse 4, and it is a mighty lesson. It's a lesson that when we hit the book of Romans in several months, we will come back to Habakkuk 2 verse 4, being one of the most important verses in all of sacred scripture, that the righteous will live by faith. Now, notice the contrast between the conduct of the Chaldeans and the faith of God's people. One writer says, the unrighteous will die by their arrogance, but the righteous will live by, help me. Okay. The unrighteous will die in their arrogance, but the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. There's the contrast. God's response teaches Habakkuk that unrepentant sinners will be judged. You remember the first lament and the second lament? Why, God, do you allow these people to get away with all this sin? God says, I will judge the Chaldeans. In the meantime, live by faith. Romans 1.17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Galatians 3.11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Hebrews 10.38, but my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And so we've reached the point of a, a, a critical decision. When, when you walk in the Birkenstocks of Habakkuk, how do you respond to bitter providence? How do you respond to trials? How do you respond to these divinely ordained events that come flowing into your life? C.S. Lewis says something interesting. He says, when we encounter pain... We are faced with two choices. And I think that Lewis is, is, is dead on correct here. Here are the two choices. When we're faced with pain, we can rebel or we can repent. We either rebel or else we make an attempt at an adjustment, which if pursued will lead to religion. And what he means is relationship with Christ. As we close this morning, I want to offer... A few principles, principles that I refer to as when you stand at the crossroads and many of you this morning may be standing at the crossroads and you see that you're like Habakkuk. You're standing in his Birkenstocks and you say, God, I understand that 
you are from everlasting. I understand that you're good. I understand that you're sovereign. But I can't seem to reconcile your goodness and your sovereignty and your love with the events that are unfolding in my life. Notice the first of seven principles. Number one, remember that you can be straight in the head, but still have a crooked heart. You say, that makes no sense at all. Here's what I mean. You need to know this morning that you can, you can be orthodox in your head, but your heart is still messed up. You can know all the correct theological answers, but your heart is not living it out. Number two, may I encourage you to pour out your heart to God and trust that God will work for you. Why? God loves to hear the prayers of his people. I want to give another advertisement for Jerry. It was, I believe, five weeks ago that Jerry and Judy had their first all-church prayer meeting. And I want to make a plea that we as a church family come, not for Jerry's benefit, but for the benefit of, of one another, for the benefit of the church family, and so that we would cry out to the living God. God loves to hear the prayers of his people. Remember that God finds great delight in working for you. Star, when, when Dan Fuller taught me this lesson, probably 20 years ago, in his book, The Unity of the Bible, it, it was life-changing. Because I, I was not acquainted with a God who has a passion to work for me. But there's a prerequisite. I must wait for him. That's the prerequisite. When I wait, God promises to act on our behalf. Number three, God intervenes for his people and sometimes chooses evil to accomplish his purposes. And many people struggle with this principle. They say that doesn't seem to make sense. And the, the, the quickest answer is to go right to the cross. The cross is the most heinous thing that's ever happened in human history. It's the most evil event that's ever occurred. Yet God used that evil event for the redemption of his people, for the redemption of his elect. Number four, God uses the prayers of his people to accomplish his purposes. You remember the words of James, you have not because you ask not. Number five, God reigns over every act of human wickedness. This is one of the things that was struggling or, or troubling in Habakkuk's mind. Where is God when bad things happen? Remember, God reigns over every act of human wickedness. Number six, remember to trust the Lord even in the midst of trying circumstances. Jonathan Edwards rightly says, we must cultivate a calm and quiet submission of soul to the sovereign pleasure of God. A theologian by the name of Anselm, one of the mottos of his life was faith seeking understanding. Faith seeking understanding. That sounds like the man in the Gospel of Mark. Lord, I believe, help my belief. And here's the final principle the final principle is kiss the wave. Not kiss your wife. That comes later. Kiss the wave. You remember what Charles Spurgeon said? He said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of all ages. My friends, when we learn to kiss the wave, 
that throws me against the rock of ages, then we're in the safest place in the universe. When we learn to kiss the wave, we're in the most secure place in the universe. But to kiss the wave involves dealing with adversity head on. But it also means waiting on a sovereign God who promises to work for us. And I am struck by Dave Furman's words, who said in the video, this is not the final chapter. So whatever pain you're dealing with, whatever emotions you're dealing with, whatever depression you're struggling with, whatever's happening in your marriage, whatever's happening with your children, this, this is not the final chapter. The final chapter is yet to be written when all of God's people will live in harmony and will be forever free from the power of sin, the penalty of sin, and sin's very presence. Amen and amen. Soli Deo Gloria. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for uh, this lesson, a series of lessons. Thank you for uh, using uh, this godly man, even in his questioning, to help us with our questions. Lord, for all here who are uh, knee-deep in a, in a serious situation, in a moment of trouble, in a season of adversity, in a time of bitter providence. God, I pray that we would learn these lessons together as a church family and that ultimately we would learn to kiss the wave, that we would learn to see these problems that surround us as divinely ordained. They're divinely ordained for our good and for your glory. Lord, these are lessons that we will come back to again and again. Help us to to treasure your sovereign designs. May we say with Jonathan Edwards that absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. Then and only then will we be able to say, I choose to kiss the wave. In Jesus' name, amen.